In December 1985, 28-year-old Debbie Wolf didn't show up to work one morning. Less than a week later, her body was found very close to her home. This is a case that challenges people's memories, motives, and puts a family at odds with the police department trusted to investigate. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the show. I have an interesting case for you today. It feels like, again, one of those episodes that is a throwback to my old show, Insight, where we covered more of these Unsolved Mysteries-style shows. And this one was actually on Unsolved Mysteries, which is how I first learned about it literally decades ago. But for what I do here on Crime Lines, it's a little bit harder to cover because it does rely a lot on people's memories and some limited early media coverage. And as we know, sometimes the earliest reports turn out to be wrong or at least misleading. And then we have memories that shift and change a little here and there. But I do want to thank Mary Virginia for recommending this topic and giving me a chance to jump into the details. Like I said, it is a case that I have been aware of for a while, but I've not really ever had the time to really look into it. And I figured I might as well take you all along with me and tell you what I've found. I am going to walk through the case and give my thoughts as we go. I am eager to hear what you think about the various points and where you agree or disagree with me. I'm definitely not a host who expects people to agree with me 100% of the time or even wants you to. If everyone agreed with me all the time, this would be a cult, not a podcast. And I think the last thing 2020 needs right now is for me to be in charge of any sort of cult. So let's go ahead and get the episode started. Debbie Wolf was born in 1957 in Arkansas, though her family was from Louisiana originally. My guess is that they ended up in Fayetteville the way a lot of people do. The military moved them there. Fayetteville, North Carolina is home to Pope Air Force Base and Fort Bragg, though they have since merged. At the time this case takes place, they were separate. Fort Bragg is not as big as Fort Hood in Texas, but it is close. In 1983, the then 26-year-old Debbie graduated from nursing school. She was dedicated to nursing. Her mother, Jenny, said she went into the field because she wanted to help people and put some good back into the world. Debbie was also very funny, and she liked to do big, somewhat outrageous things. One thing, when her mother turned 50, Debbie hired a stripper for the birthday party. And at Christmas time, she had given her mom some obscene dolls and then played it off like she was shocked her mother would think she would do such a thing. You know, the thing that she literally just did. So she was smart, she was funny, and she was just someone who really enjoyed life. Debbie also enjoyed being outside of the city. 
1985, Debbie was living alone in a small cabin about four miles outside of the Fayetteville city boundary. The cabin was rather isolated. She had neighbors, but they weren't really close together, and the view of each other's homes was obstructed by trees. So it probably even felt more isolated than it was. It was just Debbie and her two dogs out there, but she did have a boyfriend who she was getting more serious with. So it really was looking like it wouldn't be a whole lot longer of her living with the dogs by themselves. On December 25th, 1985, 28-year-old Debbie enjoyed Christmas with her family. And then on Thursday, the 26th, she reported for her job at the Veterans Administration Medical Center, which is in Fayetteville. One of her duties there was to help coordinate the volunteers. At lunchtime that day, Debbie ate with her friend and coworker, a respiratory therapist named Roger. He ended up accidentally spilling some coffee onto her sleeve. Being winter, she was wearing a long sleeve white nurse's uniform. And then while they ate, Debbie dropped some peas on the front of her uniform. Roger remembered this clearly since he had spilled on her and then she spilled on herself, and it was just one of those kind of funny, clumsy moments. And before the two went back to work, they made plans to have lunch again the next day. At 4 p.m., Debbie left work as planned, and this has been confirmed by someone else who worked in the volunteer services department who saw her leave. A very early news report said Debbie called her mother and told her she was heading home, but I've not seen it reported after that one mention. The next day, so we're on the 27th, Debbie was expected at work at 8 a.m., but she didn't show up and she didn't call. Someone must have gotten in touch with her mother because Jenny, Debbie's stepfather John, and a friend of the family named Kevin all drove out to the cottage to see what was going on. The first thing they noticed when they got there was that Debbie's car was parked haphazardly in a spot where she never parked it. Debbie was a tidy person who was, from what I've gathered, pretty predictable in her habits. So this struck them immediately. It was also noted that her driver's seat was pushed all the way back, and she was only five foot three. I know it's come up before in other cases that some short people will push their seat back to more easily get in and out of the car, but Debbie never did that. Her mom actually made it a point to mention this, that the driver's seat adjuster was tricky to work, so she never used it. Debbie's dogs ran over to John, Jenny, and Kevin as they were standing out at Debbie's car, which was not unusual. They usually had run of the property. But their food dishes were empty, and they were clearly hungry, which didn't make sense. Debbie never would have left without feeding them or at least making arrangements for someone to come out to the property to take care of them. As the three walked to the house, they noticed there were beer cans on the lawn, which, as you can guess, was not like Debbie. Like I said, she was a tidy person. 
So not only were the beer cans of a brand they had never seen her drink before, they knew she would never leave them just strewn about the yard. If Debbie had people over and they were drinking this beer, she would have picked them up or had them pick them up. She wouldn't have let people throw beer cans around the place. Inside the cabin was also disorderly. Jenny said that it was really a bunch of little things. It wasn't like the place was trashed or ransacked. It was just that there were things that were out of place. One of the things they noticed was a nurse's uniform was just dropped on the kitchen floor, almost like someone had gotten undressed in the kitchen and walked away. That didn't seem to make sense. But even more than that, this was a clean, short-sleeved, lightweight summer uniform. It was not the long-sleeved one Debbie had worn to work and had gotten multiple spills on. A lot of speculation has been put out there about this mystery uniform. Debbie's family certainly thought it was a clue to something. But I'd want to hear from someone who saw her after lunch. Because I know that if I had two stains on my white uniform at lunchtime, I would have changed if possible. I wouldn't have walked around work looking a mess for four more hours. And I know this since I spill stuff on myself all the time. I dripped cold brew on my shirt while writing this episode. I am what you would consider an expert on having to change clothes in the middle of the day because you spilled something on yourself. And I'm a slob with low standards, and I would still change. Debbie was neat and tidy and worked in a medical center. I cannot imagine her walking around in stained clothes all afternoon. Hospital workers often keep a spare uniform or scrubs in their locker or in their bag. As you can imagine, they come into contact with a lot of gross stuff. Changing is not uncommon. I don't see why the assumption being made so often is that Debbie didn't change while at work and this uniform appeared out of nowhere. It actually makes more sense to me that she would have changed. And it even makes sense that this uniform was a summer one because it was her backup for emergencies. She wouldn't want to use one that she would need to wear the next day. So she would grab and pack one that she didn't wear that often during that season. That makes sense to me. So in the end, I do think the uniform on the floor was very likely Debbie's uniform. Stripping down in the kitchen, however, does not make sense to me. Leaving your clothes on the floor when you're a neat and tidy person, not someone like me, that also doesn't make sense. But I think it's a sign she did make it home herself. The second thing that makes me think she made it home is that her purse was found at the cabin, but not in a normal spot. It was shoved under her bed. So like the uniform, it's a sign she made at home, but why was it in the spot it was? That is a question. After noticing all these little things out of place, Debbie's mother, Jenny, then checked Debbie's answering machine. 
knowing that at least a few of the messages were going to be from family or from Debbie's work asking where she is. But maybe there would be something on there that provided some clue as to where Debbie had gone. There wasn't, but there was a message that stood out. It was from someone at the VA hospital, but it wasn't her boss. Her family believes it was one of the volunteers. The man basically said he was worried about Debbie having missed work, and he asked her to call him either at work or at his home to let him know that she's okay. This seems pretty normal, except he then said that Debbie had been out a lot of days, and it made him worried that she missed another one. The message was left during the shift Debbie had missed, so it's not like she had missed a lot of days. She had only missed a few hours. So you might think maybe he meant it more broadly. He wasn't talking about her missing several days in a row, but rather she was just missing a lot of work here and there recently. But that wasn't true either. It had been quite a while since the last time Debbie had called out sick. So this message was odd any way you interpreted it. And this was all enough that Jenny decided to call the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department because Debbie lived outside city boundaries, the county had jurisdiction. They told Jenny that Debbie had to be missing for 72 hours before they could or would act. This was not uncommon for missing adults in the 1980s, and it's also why so many people today still believe they cannot report an adult missing right away, even if they have reason to believe they are endangered. Debbie's friends and family decided not to wait around for the police. They started searching the woods around the property that weekend, but they came up with nothing. On Monday, three days after Debbie hadn't shown up to work, her family was able to officially report her missing. And on Tuesday, which would be December 31st, the sheriff's department came out to the property to search. They brought a scent tracking dog with them. And here we are going to have our first splitting in the stories. The family said that they asked if the deputies were going to search the pond. It was about 50 to 100 feet behind Debbie's house. According to the family, the sheriff or a deputy basically said they could see the whole pond, the water was fairly clear, and nothing looked amiss. Plus, it was getting late, so maybe they would search it the next day if they didn't find Debbie sooner. The family asked if they could send their own divers in, and a deputy gave them the okay. Now, the sheriff's department representative, who was on Unsolved Mysteries, he said that the family said they had already searched the pond. And that's why the sheriff's department did not search that first day. Frankly, that version doesn't make a lot of sense. Because why would the family say they searched somewhere that they hadn't? And then why would they bring in divers after supposedly saying they already searched? Because they did bring in divers the next day, the family did. 
I think their memory of the conversation sounds a lot more likely. What the sheriff's deputies did note was that the scene was, quote, contaminated because people had been there searching all weekend. Of course, they were only doing that since Jenny was told on the phone that they wouldn't take her missing persons report until Monday. So it seemed a little jarring to me to read this statement about the contaminated scene in the newspaper. It felt like the police were complaining that the family searched. And the only reason they searched is because they had no other option. Now, I really do not believe they meant it the way it came out. I think it was a statement of fact, but it was still one of those jarring things to read when you're reading about an investigation that was delayed in getting started. So let's move on to the search of the pond. That happened on January 1st, 1986. Gordon Childress was a Fort Bragg paratrooper who had scuba and rescue experience. So the family brought him in to go into the pond, and he went with Kevin, who was the friend who was up at the cabin that first day. Kevin was above the water while Gordon was doing the dive. Gordon went into the water a little after three in the afternoon. He was in there for just a couple of minutes before he surfaced and told Kevin that he saw what looked like footprints in the silt on the bottom of the pond. It looked to him like two sets of footprints, and there was a drag mark along with them. Gordon went a little farther out, following the path created by whatever was dragged. The water was pretty murky, so he could not see very far ahead of him. It wasn't until he was right up to it that he saw a body. He couldn't tell who it was because all he could see was from the waist down. He surfaced, he told Kevin what he saw, and he went back down to confirm. It was a body, and Gordon said it was partially in a barrel, a 55-gallon rusty metal drum with holes in it. He characterized it as looking like a burn barrel. The head and torso of the body were in the barrel with the feet sticking out. Not wanting to interfere with the scene, obviously, Gordon surfaced and he left the water. He was in there for about 20 to 30 minutes total. The sheriff's department was called and they sent their dive team in to remove the body from the water. The water where the body was found was only about five and a half feet deep. On site, they were able to positively identify her as Debbie Wolf. Debbie was found fully clothed, including a jacket and gloves. Jenny was at the property when Debbie's body was taken away, and she overheard the divers talking about how to get the barrel out of the pond. Jenny then got distracted by something else for about 10 minutes, and when she came back out, the divers had left. She asked a deputy what was going on, and she was told the divers would come back the next day to get the barrel. 
The following day, the sheriff's department divers did go back into the water, and lo and behold, they couldn't find any barrel. They dove again and still couldn't find it. They drained the pond to two to three feet in depth, and the drum was just straight up not there. This barrel is probably the most inconsistent and contested part of this case. At various times, the sheriff's department has said there was no barrel. They would claim their divers never saw a barrel. But at a later point, they said, okay, one of their divers thought he saw a barrel, but he and Gordon had been mistaken. Now remember, Gordon gave a detailed description of the barrel, rusted 55-gallon metal drum with holes in it. And Jenny said that the barrel fit the description of a barrel that was on Debbie's property that was missing. But the official position of law enforcement is that the barrel was actually just the coat Debbie was wearing, and it had ballooned out in the water. In the murkiness, the divers misinterpreted what they were seeing. No one said they touched the barrel and confirmed that it was hard. In fact, everyone said they did not touch the barrel because they were trying to preserve evidence. Here are my thoughts on the barrel. I could accept the ballooned coat explanation if Gordon hadn't described a barrel that matched one that just so happened to be missing from Debbie's property. Because if it was just the coat, now where's our explanation for Debbie's barrel being gone? Another thing in favor of Debbie having been at least partially in the barrel was that when she came out of the water, she was relatively clean, her body and her clothing. But the divers, who had been in the water for a short amount of time, had silt everywhere. That makes me think her body was largely protected from the dirt at the bottom of the pond, and possibly because it was in a barrel. Another thing Gordon reported from his dive were the footprints and the drag marks. The sheriff's divers did not see these and had him point out where they were. So he goes to the edge of the pond and looks in. He can't find them again. The sheriff's department said that there was a lot of moss at the bottom of the pond that would have made it nearly impossible for these footprints to have been visible. But Gordon basically followed that path to the body. So I have to believe there was something there for him to have followed. Kevin has confirmed that Gordon surfaced, said he saw the footprints, and then went back down and found the body shortly after. Why would Gordon lie about this? Why would Kevin lie about this? So Gordon saw something. And I believe something was there. Perhaps Gordon had accidentally obscured the path in the process of his dive. Maybe the sheriff's divers did it. Whatever it was, I do 100% believe Gordon that he saw something that led him to the body. The day after Debbie's body was found, the autopsy was conducted. 
A small amount of water was found in her upper respiratory system, but there were no other signs of drowning. And if you listened to my live stream or watched the Unsolved Mysteries episode on Alonzo Brooks, we all know that signs of drowning are not always present, even when the cause of death is known to be drowning. Debbie's tox screen came back negative for drugs and alcohol, and there were very few marks noted on her body aside from some bruising, but nothing to indicate a serious attack. There were also obviously no stab wounds, gunshot wounds, blunt force trauma, anything obvious. The cause of death was ruled to be drowning, and the mode of death was accidental. One report I read said that the medical examiner actually marked the cause and or mode as undetermined because there were not definitive signs of drowning. But the ultimate ruling on the part of law enforcement, how they were proceeding, was that this was an accidental drowning. They theorized that Debbie came home from work, changed clothes, left her uniform on the floor in the kitchen for some reason, hid her purse under her bed as you do, and then she went outside to play with her dogs. While playing near the pond, she lost her footing and fell in. The family claims this was not even possible. Had Debbie drowned and inhaled the murky, dirty water, she would have had some signs of that silt in her airways, not just a little bit of water. They also said it wasn't like Debbie to go down to the pond in the cold. But the really compelling part of this, for me, is that the water at the edge of the pond is only an inch or two deep, and it gradually sloped out. By the time you walked five feet out from the banks, you're still only knee-deep. Had Debbie stumbled in, she would have ended up wet, but not submerged. Plus, Debbie was a really good swimmer, so even if she fell in a little deeper or she just kept stumbling until it was up to her chest, she could have just swam out. The police theorized that maybe the army field jacket she was wearing became soaked and it made it harder for her to get up or tread water or swim to the shore. That makes sense, but then I go back to the water being an inch or two deep. She stumbles out more than five feet past knee-deep water. That's hard to picture happening. Then an alternative theory was presented that Debbie, for whatever reason, decided to walk out on the pond's thin ice covering, which then broke and she fell in. Being disoriented, she couldn't get back out and couldn't get to the shore. This would explain her going in at a deeper point. Perhaps in the dark, she was disoriented enough that she actually swam farther out rather than to shore. I couldn't find a definitive source that was telling me how deep the deepest point of this pond was. My understanding is that where she was found in the five-and-a-half-foot-deep water was at least close to the deepest part. Five-and-a-half feet of water isn't super deep, but it would have been over her head. As Debbie stayed in this cold water longer, 
as the theory goes, she became a victim of immersion syndrome, which happens within minutes of being in very cold water. It causes the gasp, reflex, hyperventilation, irregular heartbeat, and a bunch of other medical things. It would explain why Debbie, who was a strong swimmer, just couldn't get out of the water. I've seen some talk online of people confusing immersion syndrome with immersion foot, aka trench foot. These are not the same thing, so if you do decide to look up more on this, be sure you're reading about the right thing, immersion syndrome, not immersion foot. Immersion syndrome does sound plausible if we can get Debbie going into the water at a deeper point than the shore. What doesn't sound plausible is getting her to that point. She was a grown woman. She was a nurse. Why would she be walking out on what would have been a thin layer of ice at best? She would have known the risks. I checked the historic weather online for that week. And leading up to when Debbie went missing, it was above freezing most of the week. A few days before, it even hit 60 degrees. So I'm not even talking barely above freezing. It was well above freezing. The water would have been icy, but would it have been iced over enough that a responsible and not reckless adult would have walked out on it? I'm having a hard time buying that. And the family couldn't buy it either. They also said that they saw scratches on Debbie's hands and bruises around her neck. I've not seen the autopsy report myself, but from the newspaper reporting at the time, it indicated there were not a lot of marks on her body, so I don't know if these were seen on autopsy, because the reports I have are vague. The bruises on the neck that the family reports did stand out to me because I had just listened to the Trail Went Cold's episode on a different mysterious death, Gita Angara, and Robin, the host, mentioned that neck bruising is sometimes seen in cold water drownings. He was nice enough to send me the article explaining the phenomenon. Basically, what happens is when someone becomes submerged in cold water, they bob back up and then they get their head above the water. As they're treading water, there is a vast temperature difference between their body and their head, and it causes hemorrhaging at the neckline. But in the case Robin covered, the woman was found in a million-gallon water tank that was 35 feet deep. Debbie Wolf was found in five and a half feet of water, just three inches over her head, in a pond that frankly wasn't that big. Would this type of hemorrhaging happen when she wouldn't have really been treading water, but rather bobbing up and down? I don't know, that seems unclear, but it did make me think of that. And I always love an opportunity to recommend The Trail Went Cold because it's a phenomenal Unsolved Mysteries podcast. So definitely go check Robin's show out, you know, after you finish this one. So Debbie's mother, Jenny, was very vocal about the condition of her daughter's body in regards to this neck bruising, which she believed were signs of strangulation and marks on her hands, 
which she believed were defensive wounds. But this wasn't all, because Jenny noted the otherwise very good condition of Debbie's body. As in, she didn't look like she had been in the water for five or six days. They even had an open casket funeral. Jenny believed that Debbie had been kidnapped, held somewhere, killed a couple of days later, and then put in the barrel and dumped in the pond. This would mean Debbie was alive some of that time when the family was searching for her. The issue here is that there were two autopsies. Of course, the police had one done as part of their investigation, but the family had an independent autopsy performed for their investigation. Both of these found that the body's condition was consistent with being in the water for nearly a week because this was very cold water, and we know the cold helps preserve the body. The bloating and buildup of decomp gases you would expect just are not going to happen as quickly in water this cold. Like I said, with the family having their own autopsy, they did continue to investigate this, even though the police did not believe it was a crime. A few days after she was found, one of her friends searching the property, hoping to find more clues, found a wool hat that they believed belonged to Debbie. It was found on the opposite side of the pond, across from where Debbie would have fallen in if she was out playing with her dogs, and that's what happened. The sheriff's department said that the hat must have floated to the shore after they finished their search, but the family said it was impossible for the hat to have made it to that spot just floating from the pond. So this is bringing into question the thoroughness of the police search. And the police investigation is something the family was concerned about pretty much right away. On January 3rd, so we're talking two days after Debbie was found, Jenny expressed to the media how she was already unhappy with how things were going. It had taken the police so long to even come out to the property to search, and then they have the issue of the disappearing barrel. The family was growing frustrated, and they felt left down by the sheriff's department. So on January 5th, the Cumberland County Sheriff asked the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation to conduct a probe into the department's handling of Debbie's case. And this really surprised me, almost as much as this magic disappearing barrel, because I do not think I've ever heard of law enforcement asking for an outside evaluation four days into a case. And what that tells me is that they truly did not believe they were in the wrong. And whether they were or not, I think this illustrates something that happens a lot. We often look for a good old boy conspiracy to cover things up. We look to see who possibly has family and law enforcement. Maybe a police officer did something because the police are 
clearly not investigating. But I think in most cases, it's really that the investigators genuinely believe they are right. They believe their theories even after they've seen evidence to the contrary or evidence that makes us wonder why they didn't have at least some doubt. Getting a badge does not make you immune to confirmation bias and tunnel vision. Let's look at the Skiba-Chivers case from a couple weeks ago. That's exactly this principle in action. A police officer got married to a theory and ignored the actual crime scene evidence because it didn't fit his theory. Now, with this case, with Debbie Wolf's case, this has a lot fewer obvious clues than the Skiba-Chivers case. There is no blood evidence and bullet holes here. So when the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation looked into it, they backed up Cumberland County in both their handling of the case and in their conclusion. So fast forward a few months, when the investigation was closed out, Jenny got Debbie's things back, meaning the items she was wearing when her body was found. And Jenny said none of the items actually belonged to Debbie. The jacket she was wearing was an Army field jacket. It was relatively new-looking, and it was a size small. Now, Debbie owned a field jacket, but it was a hand-me-down from her brother, who was six feet tall and 185 pounds, so obviously not a size small. Additionally, they found that jacket hanging in a closet in the cabin. Debbie's boyfriend, Steve, was in the military, and he said he never got her a jacket like that and didn't know that she had a size small one. How and where and when and why Debbie got this jacket has never been found. The shoes Debbie was wearing were the wrong size. She wore a woman's size 7, a U.S. 7. These were a men's U.S. 6 which would be the equivalent of a woman's size 8. So these are one size too big. And I don't mean to sound like I'm nitpicking details here, but I don't actually think these shoes were too big. They were one size too big, but they were also Nikes, which famously run small. A lot of people go a full size up in Nike shoes. The sheriff's department said they saw pictures of Debbie wearing these shoes, though her family disputes these were her shoes. I think it's fully possible these were her shoes. Another item of clothing that came back was a Pittsburgh Steelers shirt that none of her family or friends had ever seen before. She was also wearing a pair of men's pants that were too long for her, and they were found unbuttoned on her. I think we can make excuses for all these various sized clothing, except for Debbie's bra. The bra she was wearing was the wrong size. You will read all sorts of numbers out there. It's three cup sizes too big. It's two sizes too big around. But she wore a 34B and this was a 38C. So we're not talking three cup sizes too large. That's just one cup size. But the band was two full sizes too large. So even on the tightest hooks, this would have been too big. Even as a comfort thing, 
there really isn't a benefit to wearing a bra that is this much too big. You might as well just not wear one. Unless this was a sports bra that she sized up so she didn't get too much compression, I have to admit this really does sound like she was wearing someone else's bra. The police also returned glass beads and a handmade necklace found either on Debbie or at the scene. There was a pouch on the necklace, and inside that, it contained what Jenny has called an evil eye symbol. She had never seen this jewelry before. She said it wasn't the sort of thing Debbie was into or owned. There are no pictures available of this item that would tell us what it was, and I don't expect Jenny to be an expert on religious iconography, so it's possible she just wasn't entirely sure what she was looking at. But she said it's not something Debbie would have owned, and I would believe her on that. She might not know if Debbie owned a sports team's shirt. She wouldn't know. Maybe she owned these Nikes. But you tend to know other people's aesthetic, especially your daughter. So I do believe this stands out. So with all these items coming back, stuff Jenny did not believe belonged to her daughter, but I think there's a question mark there. These things made her believe that someone dressed Debbie after killing her and dressed her in whatever clothes they had on hand, and then they dumped her body in the pond. So the police believe it was a terrible accident, and the family believes this was a kidnapping and a murder. The family even had two suspects. Neither one were Debbie's boyfriend. It's not spelled out anywhere, but I have to assume he had an alibi since he doesn't come up in the story pretty much at all. Both of the people the family looked at volunteered at the VA where Debbie was the young and energetic volunteer coordinator. A few of them took an interest in her. Most backed off after learning she had a boyfriend, but two did not. And one of them was very persistent. He asked her out multiple times in spite of her turning him down every time. He apparently was able to get her phone number from work and called her house to the point that Debbie felt she needed to change her phone number because he said something about how he was going to come over. And it has been reported that he had a history of mental illness. Nothing more specific than that has been reported. If you've listened to the show before, you can already guess that I'm not really in love with this point. The implication of, well, he had a mental illness, so, you know, top of the suspect list he goes, is so irresponsible, and it contributes to the stigmatization of mental illness. Unless we have a history of violence on his part, his mental health isn't a conversation point for me. I get that this happened in the 1980s, so it's going to be in the reporting. But when you put together a podcast like I do, one that relies on the existing reporting that may come from a time where things were not reported on in a way that we currently believe is appropriate, you just can't keep repeating that language. You have to take this information, process it, and report it back responsibly. What puts him 
on the suspect list is that he was persistently asking her out, not taking no for an answer, and clearly had issues with boundaries because he called her at home, which was unwanted attention. He did not get her phone number from her. He had to go look it up. Investigators say they did look into this man. He did have an alibi, but it's not entirely clear if he had an alibi for when the police believe Debbie went into the water, which was the 26th, or if it also included the days Debbie was missing, because Debbie's family believes that she was abducted and held for a few days before being dumped in the pond. Does he have an alibi for this whole week? That's not clear. It's possible the police did not check this since they were running a different theory of what happened entirely. The second suspect the family had in mind was another volunteer who also asked Debbie out, and this is the man Jenny believes left that voicemail. And it seems like he's the one she suspected above the other guy. The answering machine message is weird. Why mention Debbie had missed multiple days of work when she hadn't? It sounds like he was anticipating the call to be heard days later and wanted it to sound like a concerned friend. So I asked on Twitter, you you know, doing my proper research, I asked people about their experiences with answering machines in the mid-1980s. I was too young. My family was a late adopter to pretty much every piece of technology out there. So I really have no experience in this field. I wanted to know, did the mid-1980s answering machines record date and time? The answer I got was sometimes. Some recorded it and some didn't, and some would just record the time but not the date. The more expensive ones, though, recorded both. So it's possible that this man, if he did something to Debbie, assumed they wouldn't be able to tell when he left his message, except that Jenny went to the cabin that day and listened to it. The recording of the call that is available online does not say the date or time, so it is really possible her machine did not record it. But because Jenny played the message that day, we do know it was left that morning. I will play the recording now, which I got from the website of Dr. Maurice Godwin, who did a reinvestigation back in the 2010s. Hey, Deb, Mr. Harrisburg today. I just wondered how you're doing. Uh... If you're able to give me a call up here at the ward, I'm at 822-7007, or give me a call at home tonight. Uh, you've been out a lot of days. Maybe worry when you miss another one. I just want to make sure you're okay. Bye. If you couldn't understand it, I did make a rough transcription. It just says, hey, Deb, missed you here at work today. I was just wondering how you're doing. Um, If you're able to give me a call up here at the ward, I'm at 822-7007, or give me a call at home tonight. Uh, You've been out a lot of days. You make me worried when you miss another one. Just want to make sure you're okay. Bye. 
So the caller clearly says she has been out a lot of days and he wanted to make sure she was okay. This sounds to me like someone's setting this up since we know she did not miss a lot of days. The phone number left does go back to the Fayetteville VA. The most recent assignment of the number that I could find was to a doctor there, and he definitely was not the caller. It appears he was likely in another state at the time, and he's also from Southeast Asia. The caller clearly does not have that accent. To me, it sounds like someone local to the area. This call is part of Jenny's theory of what happened to Debbie. She believes it was meant to be heard days later. She believed that the seat in Debbie's car was pushed back because the person used it to transport Debbie off the property and then to return with her body later. The disappearing barrel is yet another part. After Debbie's body was found, Jenny believes someone went back to retrieve the barrel in the event there was any evidence on it, like, say, the killer's fingerprints. And this part, it's hard for me to stretch my mind to. Do you know how risky that was to go to an active crime scene that's being investigated and take away this barrel just in case it had the evidence on it? Evidence that wouldn't also have been on Debbie's body? But on the other hand, the explanation that the barrel was never there and it was just her jacket, that also seems like a stretch because a matching barrel to what Gordon saw was missing. I think that's part of what intrigues me about this case. If I believe the investigators or I believe the family, I am being required to stretch my mind to something that seems unlikely to me. I think I can say that I don't agree with either side completely. I don't think this was an accident, but I also don't think Debbie was abducted and killed elsewhere and then her body was redressed. And I don't think some random nurse's uniform was planted alongside some beer cans. Those of you who don't like speculation have probably already turned this off, but My theory is that Debbie was murdered, but at her house and immediately put into the pond. Maybe it was someone she knew who she was sitting outside drinking beer with. Maybe it was someone who came into her house and she stashed her purse under her bed because she thought she was being robbed. Maybe the person was parked in her usual parking spot, and that's why she parked somewhere else. Maybe her parents didn't recognize the clothes because they were her house clothes that she didn't wear unless she was feeling like being comfortable. I know these are a lot of maybes. I know these are a lot of ifs. But this is one of those cases where it is pretty much pure speculation because we have two sides with two completely different stories and no really solid evidence in either direction. So I would like to hear your thoughts on this one Whether you agree with me or not, whether you agree with the family or not, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so you can let me know there, or you can just pop into my live stream. I do those Thursdays, 8, 7 Central, and let me know there. Even when I have a topic in my live stream, we always have a chit-chat part of it where you can just talk about a case. 
the official ruling remains an accidental death, regardless of what anyone else thinks. In 1990, the case was featured on Unsolved Mysteries, and a representative from the sheriff's department defended their work. They said they followed up on every lead the family brought them, even though they believed it was an accident. Any person Jenny wanted them to talk to, they talked to. In 1991, the TV Guide magazine hired a PI who concluded it was murder and the person who did it was the man on the answering machine. That said, the PI used existing reports and unsolved mysteries. He didn't actually investigate it as far as I can tell, so his opinion really isn't any better than mine. Then in the 2010s, Dr. Maurice Godwin decided to investigate the case himself, like I said earlier. And Dr. Godwin is a former police officer with a doctorate in investigative psychology, so his opinion is a lot more solid than mine. He was able to get the case file, which is fortunate, because according to other news reports, at some point, the sheriff's department purged it. Because the case was ruled accidental, it was not criminal, and it was not an open case. So Dr. Godwin had gotten it either before they tossed it or he got a copy maybe the family held on to, but it's a good thing he has it because it doesn't seem like it exists anywhere else. Well, Dr. Godwin seems to think that this was a murder and that there appears to have been semen detected at the autopsy. So he was looking to raise the money to pay for the DNA testing while also trying to get the sheriff's department to allow it to happen. Sometimes we think, well, there's DNA, why isn't the family testing it? Or why isn't a defendant in an appeal testing it? And the truth is that they don't have control of the evidence, the state does. So either the police agree to test it at someone else's expense, at their own expense, or you have to go to court and have a judge decide whether or not to do the test. It doesn't look like this was successful. Either the funds weren't raised or the police wouldn't test it. I'm not sure which, but we do not have any updates on that. It may still be a pending situation. Now, you might wonder why semen was found and law enforcement didn't think it was relevant or that it pointed to someone else being involved in Debbie's death. I think it's probably because she had a boyfriend who I'm sure she saw during the holidays. They may have just assumed it was his. And also in early 1986, when her body was found, there wasn't a lot they could do with this evidence anyway. This was the year DNA testing was first used in a police investigation in the U.S. So there would have been no thought that popped into anyone's head that they should test for DNA in what they believe is an accidental death. It just wouldn't have occurred to them to do it. But they could test it now if the swab still exists, if it was stored properly, and if the time Debbie was in the water didn't degrade the DNA too much. That's a lot of ifs. But what alternative is there to getting this solved? Debbie's father, mother, stepfather, and brothers have all passed away in the nearly 35 years since her death. Witnesses have died or moved away. The people who work at the hospital have left. New people took their places. 
So the what if surrounding that DNA swab is the best chance of this case being resolved. Resolved. 